Welcome to Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, a production of the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, where each week we explore a different facet of one of the largest nearly intact temperate zone ecosystems on Earth. If you've followed this podcast when it came from our old Two Minutes in the Yellowstone Ecosystem radio broadcast, you'll be happy to know that we are freed from that short format now, and we can explore topics in greater depth. This is our third long-form episode, and today we'll be exploring how animals end up in a wildlife sanctuary. My name is Gary Robson. My co-host is our education manager, Courtney Long. Our guest this week is Laurie Wolf, Acting Education Bureau Chief for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, who oversees Montana Wild, a rehabilitation and education center in Helena, Montana. This is a topic that comes up an awful lot for us when people come through here on tours, right? How did this animal get here? Well, when you have sanctuary in the name, I guess it's kind of a natural flow of thought for people. Why do your animals look old or injured or sick? And <laughs> so, and the yeah. answer is because mm-hmm. they are old or injured mm-hmm. or sick in a lot of cases. In a lot of cases, but really it's amazing how he- healthy all of our animals are compared to, you know, animals in other facilities. But our animals are actually pretty healthy. They just might be missing a leg or an eye or a wing. <laughs> And it, it blows people's minds sometimes when we tell them how old the animals are, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's crazy in captivity how much longer an animal can live than if it we're out in the wild. Like porcupines, I think, are like three times longer in captivity. Do you find a lot of people confused about the difference between a sanctuary and a rehabilitation facility? Yeah, and I think a lot of that too comes from a lot of sanctuaries are also rehabilitation facilities. We're kind of unique in that aspect that we don't do any on-site rehabilitation. So explain what what is rehab as compared to sanctuary. So a rehabilitation facility is where an animal initially goes. And the, the goal of a rehab facility is to make sure that they do what they can, that this animal can be released back into the wild. And that's really what we always strive for here at our sanctuary. You know, if someone calls, our first question is usually, has it been through a rehab facility? Has it been deemed non-releasable? Because we don't want to take any animals if it can live a life out in the wild, making those choices every day, more room to roam. And so a rehab facility is going to take that animal in and try to do what they can, but, you know, in a lot of circumstances, they just can't be uh, released back into the wild. That's where we step in. That's why we actually put that right in the mission statement, that we only take in animals that have been declared non-releasable. Yeah, exactly. Another question that comes up a lot is the rules what do you have to do to be able to keep these wild animals? Could I keep one of these wild animals? And I usually start by explaining that you have to have federal permits because there's a division of the USDA called APHIS, the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, that's responsible for enforcing the Animal Welfare Act. And they have to issue a permit. They come in, they inspect us every year. Surprise inspections, sometimes more than once a year. Because we have migratory birds, we also have to have a migratory bird permit that allows us to keep those. Uh, There are some birds that require permits above and beyond that, like eagles. But then the rules in every state are different. Even the definition of a wild animal is different. Here in Montana, there are zoo permits, there are breeding facility permits, which, depending on the number of animals you own, 
Facilities that don't actually raise animals for fur have to get a fur farm permit because it's the only way yep. they can <laughs> raise more than, what is it, six animals? Um, I'd have sure to look that yeah. up. Um, and then there's the private owner and collector. Uh, you've worked in several different states. Have you seen significantly different rules there? I've seen significantly different rules on what types of animals you can have. So if I lived in North Carolina and I wanted to buy an animal that was in Montana, uh, it's definitely up to me to make sure that I have a license in North Carolina, even though it's legal in Montana. So, and even just with rehabilitation facilities, the, the laws are so much different from East Coast versus West Coast. And our view on what kinds of animals we can rehab and release back into the wild. Yeah, it's a complicated subject <laughs> to talk about for sure. And one of the things we'll talk about with our guest, Laurie Wolf, in a few minutes is animals that rehab facilities just won't take um we've found we have a raccoon here named mika mika is one of our most popular animals uh, she has only three legs because she was hit by a car once she's here you can't release a three-legged raccoon mm-hmm. we have a perfectly healthy raccoon that's here because raccoons cannot be rehabilitated and released in montana due to concerns about rabies Right. Yeah. Well, and Cooper, our healthy raccoon, he was raised in a different state and and as a pet too. And so even just among states, the laws are different on if you can even have a raccoon as a pet. In Montana, you cannot, but Cooper was raised in, um, in a different state. Sometimes we know exactly what caused the injury. We know exactly how a bird got here. Uh, speaking to some of the rehabilitation centers that we've gotten birds from, they can tell us, Mm -hmm. well, somebody found this injured bird and we pulled eight pieces of shot out of it. So yeah, it was a shotgun that took this one down. But some we just know, uh, Polly, for example, our prairie falcon, um, had a wing injury so severe the wing had to be amputated, but we don't know why. We don't know what caused Mm -hmm. that. What do you find are the most common injuries to birds that bring them to a place like this? Well, yeah, definitely car accidents, any uh, head injuries or wing injuries as a result of that. So vision is crucial for especially a bird of prey to be able to to find their their prey and and catch it either midair or ambushing it. And so if you have a head injury and now you can't really see as well, that's going to be a huge detriment to that raptor. Yeah, we have a Swainson's hawk here that has only one eye, and she can fly perfectly well, but without binocular vision, she can't catch prey. Yeah, same with our our, our new screech owl, too. Her vision isn't as as good as it should be for a nocturnal predator, so how is she going to be able to, to successfully see and catch her prey? Beyond injuries comes up the issue of orphaned animals, and sometimes... We know the story. We understand those animals actually were orphaned. Our bison, Speedy, was rejected by her mother. She was a runt. She was much smaller than her sister, and uh, her mother just wouldn't feed her, and she was hand-raised by people. They tried to release her. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't go. Uh, If you've grown up in somebody's house, you're not going to want to go live in the wild anymore. They never found the mother of Sacagawea, our mountain lion, who was found in a window well in Bozeman. As we discovered with the rescue we did, there are very few facilities that will rehabilitate and release a captive-raised mountain lion 
because it can cost upwards of $100,000 to do so. The animal has to actually be trained and tested on on chasing yeah. down prey. Well, and there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of opinions on releasing those those big predators back into the wild too. So I think there's a lot of work to be done with bears and mountain lions and and wolves, all those large predators. People don't really want those predators, you know, around their homes. So there's not really a, a huge push to be releasing those predators back out into into the wild either. And with the orphans, I I have such a um, conflicting opinion about you know whether you we should be taking in orphans and you know the the saying goes if you care leave them there and you know sometimes you really have to let natural processes play out and as hard as that can be so if you do see an orphan it's not always the right choice to take that that orphaned animal out of the wild sometimes you really just have to let nature you know run its due course but in the cases where you know you somebody does shoot an animal and they didn't realize that it had young or if you hit an animal and you realize that she has young then I can understand if it's a human caused um, situation of of taking that animal that orphan in and and giving it its best shot. Even those wild releases with um, mountain lions for example they've done quite a few of them from a facility in Colorado. Yeah. Um, They find about a 30 to 40 percent success rate in whether those animals survive after being released and they only deal with animals that are from their area a mountain lion from here will never be released in florida because it's not a florida panther Mm -hmm. yeah they are different they might have uh, different methods of survival that work here but may not work in in other climates for sure and then we end up with pets and privately owned animals you and I were just talking about this recently, <laughs> uh, the thought that has to go in before taking any kind of a pet and how different it is when that pet is a wild or exotic animal. Yeah, whether it's a, a pet hamster or a wolf-dog hybrid, you know, you should always have a backup plan. And then if, if you're going to be taking on exotics, there are lots of people who, who take in exotic animals and provide excellent care and loving homes, ample enrichment and space. And so... We don't always say that should never be the option, but we should definitely, as a as a community, think more about those decisions before we want to take in a bobcat or a lynx or any other type of exotic and have you know backup plan B, C, D all the way through Z if you need to. You never know what kinds of things could happen. You could um, have a family. You could move. There's all these things that you know we need to consider. And researching the particular animal that you're looking at before you make that decision, although sometimes I understand it's a snap decision, realizing that that fox uh, isn't just like a cat spraying. That musk gland produces some really smelly urine, and your house will smell like a skunk. Yeah. If you've ever dealt with a, uh, a cat or a dog that gets destructive on your furniture, imagine if that's a a 40-pound bobcat or a 120-pound wolf, uh, the destruction will be far, far worse. Yes, and those animals, you know, as exotics, they still have a lot of those natural instincts to dig and mark, you know, spaces as their territory. So there's a lot of things, even things we don't understand about animals, as much research as we've done, that you should definitely consider the unknowns of taking in any, any wildlife. 
And moving an animal from one state to another uh, subjects you to a whole new set of laws as well. Yeah, yes. Even as we found out when we transferred some mountain lions to a facility in California earlier, the, or earlier last year, we helped with a rescue on those. And even going from a licensed sanctuary in one state to a licensed sanctuary in another state required quite the trail of paperwork. Yes, as it should, we should be we should be monitoring closely the movement of of animals in captivity, wild animals in captivity. So it's better to have those regulations than to just be freely moving animals around and potentially carrying diseases or whatnot that we don't want spreading. Ideally, wild animals live in the wild, but if they're non-releasable, they come to a sanctuary. People can be like that too. For us, the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is both our place in the wild and our sanctuary. Would you like to live somewhere surrounded by the grandeur of nature? This episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is sponsored by Greater Montana Realty in Red Lodge, Montana. The owner, Harry Holman, can help you find your perfect wild home or property. Give him a call at 406-446-9112 or visit their website, greatermontanarealty.com. He'll help you find a place to hang your hat. Well, you were part of the big transfer just a few months ago of some wolves from another state into our sanctuary mm-hmm. here in, in Montana. Yeah. What kinds of things did you run into? You know, we really didn't have uh, a lot of problems moving the, the wolves from California back in. We didn't have to stop anywhere and answer any questions. So I think that would have been a little bit more challenging if, if we had gone through a checkpoint and actually had to explain. It was rather entertaining when we got stopped at the California border and and asked what's in that trailer and I said mountain lions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the guy really didn't believe me. Yeah. <laughs> I know you have your own your own picture in your head of what is the future of a wild, of wildlife sanctuaries. Where are we going? Where are we going to be? Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, there's this vision that in the future there's not a lot of need for for wildlife sanctuaries that we don't have a lot of animals going into rehabilitation facilities and either um, not being able to be released back into the wild and or needing to be at a sanctuary so and for me that just means you know maybe what's happening is that as people who are a part of the ecosystems that these animals belong in maybe we're doing more of our part to reconnect with those ecosystems and live within it rather than just placing ourselves you know in that ecosystem and then putting our own agenda I guess on on what we need to be doing so maybe we're building more wildlife corridors so wildlife can cross roads safely or just allowing our backyards to grow a little bit more natural and that will allow more cover for wildlife to move and evade predators and so that's kind of my hope is that you know really we don't need to be here um, giving lifelong sanctuary to these animals because maybe as people we've learned how to live with wildlife and and to be in less conflict with them and that's kind of I guess my dream and that's what motivates me when I do education programs of how can I connect people with these animals so that they want to make changes in their own lives to nurture these animals in the wild. That may sound utopian but there are a lot of goals wrapped into what you're talking about that are achievable We're actually going to talk about some of those in an upcoming episode on migration Mm -hmm. where where we'll discuss uh, 
wildlife corridors and, and some of the successes going on there. We're going to chat a little bit right now with Laurie Wolf. She's the Acting Education Bureau Chief for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And she oversees a facility called Montana Wild, where some of our animals have come from. Tell us a little bit about Montana Wild and what it does. So what we are actually, we're, we're twofold. We have an education center, and that is open to the public. And at the education center is where we do programs um, for school groups. We also do evening programs. And then in the summer, we sort of switch gear and gears, and our focus is more on outdoor recreation. And so that is the education center side. And then we also have the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center, which is close to the public, but is where we um, rehabilitate injured and orphaned wildlife. So there is some overlap, too, as well, because at the rehabilitation center, we have ambassador birds that come over and do programs on a consistent basis here at the education center. I know you get a lot of calls from people about animals that they have found or animals that they have. In fact, you probably get a lot because we send a lot of people up to you. When you get a call there about an animal at the rehab side, how do you decide whether you can accept it or not? That's a good question. And just so you know, we get a lot of those calls actually at our education center as well. And we have folks that even just walk in the front door with injured or orphaned animals and because it is open to the public. So it, it depends on the animal. Um, it depends on the circumstances for sure. We have an intake policy that guides us on what animals we can take or cannot take. And some of those animals that are prohibited is based on the fact because they may be um, rabies vectors and they also may carry other diseases such as like chronic waste disease um, and some of those other diseases that may be zoonotic so we don't take those animals either. So we do have an intake policy that dictates what we can and cannot take. And then we also um, have a, a lengthy conversation really with the individual whether they're here in person or on the phone about what the circumstances are, whether, you know, if they're saying that it is an orphaned animal, we try to get to the bottom of whether it is truly an orphaned animal, and then if it's an injured animal, to what extent those injuries are. And so then once we determine, because we don't, we don't typically will take animals that have non-life-threatening injuries either, because animals are fairly hardy and a lot of them can do just fine out in the wild, and it's sort of, it is our premise that it is better for an animal to be left in the wild because that's where they thrive, that's where, where they like to be, than here at our rehabilitation center. However, there are those special circumstances where the animal's injuries are too great for it to be able to forage properly or, um, or fly or whatever the circumstances is. And then if it fits within our intake policy and it is a species that we take, then we will ask that individual um, to go ahead and bring it in, or we will go and get it. Um, we prefer that we are involved in the transport and picking it up, but sometimes that just isn't the case. We actually did our previous episode of this podcast about chronic wasting disease. Uh, Courtney works for the state part-time every fall during hunting season at one of the inspection stations. And we we were curious. Uh, we know that because of chronic wasting disease, you can't take and we can't take any cervids, any deer, elk, moose, and rabies concerns mean uh, raccoons, skunks, bats. Are there any other diseases that are problems or issues you look at right now? 
I would say Fox is also on that list for rabies vectors, although it's not as pop, they're not as prevalent. The rabies vector here in Montana is in other states. We don't take Fox for that reason too as well. And then there's just, it, it, there's a whole other array of things, if, if I can say this. Let me see. So a lot of these animals sometimes will carry parasites, like, or they will carry diseases that we don't want to introduce into our center or, or expose our volunteers to. It could be zoonotic diseases, but it also could be things that they could take home to their pets at home. So, for example, fox carry parvo quite often. So we do not, we choose not to take fox into our center. Um, and then, like raccoons, aside from being rabies vectors, they are often um, carriers of a lot of parasites. And so we, we do not take um, raccoon as well. So it really is about maintaining the safety and health of not just only um, our volunteers and staff that work at our center, but also the health and safety of the animals that are already um, being cared for at the center. This was the year of the raccoon last year for us. I had to say no to 52 different raccoons that people had called us about. Most of them were people who had gone out to the barn and found some baby raccoons and said, oh, gosh, I don't see an adult around. They must have been abandoned. And I told them, please put them back and wait. Uh, are, are most of the calls that you get about injured and sick animals or about animals that are habituated or orphaned? It's a combination of both. It's seasonal, really. So in the springtime, early summer, we get a lot of calls on what people perceive as orphaned animals. And then, like in the fall, when birds are migrating through, we'll get a lot of calls on injured raptors. And then in between there, um, we also get calls on animals that are, have injuries. So it's sort of a combination of both. Um, but particularly in the spring, we get a lot of calls on what people think are orphaned animals. And as you guys, I'm sure, are very familiar with it, most of the time these are not orphaned animals. Animals just take care of their young differently than we do. So they'll leave them alone for long periods of time. And often it's to keep those their, their young safe. And so we get those calls quite a bit, and, we, and not just calls, but we get people walking in with what they think are orphan birds or rabbits or, like in your case, you're saying raccoons, and we take the time to explain, you know, how animals typically care for their young. And we want them to keep an eye on it because if they are indeed orphaned, we want to make sure that we're able to be a resource for them. Um, but we also want to give that animal the chance to be in the wild as much as possible because that is where they thrive. And the way that we explain it to folks is that, I mean, if you were an orphaned fawn, would you prefer to take your chances out in the wild or would you rather live the rest of your life in captivity? And so let's give that, you know, fawn that you think is orphaned maybe an opportunity, one, to reconnect with its mother that may be nearby, or two, if it's past a certain age, they may be just fine on their own versus going into – and plus uh, – Plus, deer just don't do well in captivity either. When you get in a raptor that you've determined is probably not going to be releasable, how do you decide if that one is suitable for education use? So, um, it, a lot of it depends on its, you know, its disposition, its temperament. Um, and we are moving more towards, because we actually have 19 ambassador birds right now, so we are not looking at bringing in more ambassador birds. We have we are chock full of them. And so what we are really looking at now, too, is before the bird is even brought into our center um, based on its injuries. And you can't always 
with great certainty determine this, but if we don't feel that it is a good candidate for release, is it a good idea to bring it into the center? Is its best option euthanizing? Because unless we know of a facility that is looking for this particular species, um, we would rather that be the option. We just don't have the room at our center to be, and the, or the resources to be putting that much money into an, an animal that we feel is not um, a good candidate for release. Because that is really our whole take at our center is we rehabilitate wildlife for release back into the wild. Now, sometimes we don't know there's a gray area and we'll bring in a, a bird in and we'll take a look at it and we may even opt to even spend, you know, the resources on the surgery because it's kind of, it's looking good and then we find out later it cannot be released. Then we will look a lot at um, what would make this bird a good candidate to be an education bird. And we will work with it for a while before we make that determination. And But after a certain period of time, if we just know with great certainty that it would never be, you know, a good candidate for an education bird, then we will make that um, decision to probably euthanize. A lot of the animals that we have here at the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary have come down from Montana Wild, uh, all four of our bears, our mountain lion. Um, we've gotten birds in the past from there. Um, I also know that there have been some animals that have been sent to zoos clear across the country. Um, obviously, in some cases, it depends on whether there's a nearby facility that can take the animal. Uh, we can't take a grizzly bear, so you're going to have to send it somewhere else. What other factors determine where a, um, a non-releasable animal might go? So it's a little different with the mammals. What I was speaking to beforehand was how to do more with um, birds. With the mammals, if we get an animal in that, and there are certain species that we just will simply not return to back to the wild, and that would be like your grizzly bears, your mountain lions, lynx, bobcat, and a lot of it has to do on um, when they come in at a certain age and they've been orphaned. First of all, we won't take them as adults, but secondly, they don't do well when they're released back into the wild. We just simply can't teach them everything they need to know to be a successful mountain lion, and so. Um, when that is the case, we immediately start looking for a placement, and we reach out to zoos. And for us, we um, have to place them in either AZA or ZZA accredited facilities. And then within four weeks, if we do not, four to six weeks, if we have not found a placement, we have to honestly, we have to look at euthanizing, which we don't like doing. Um, and it's something that we've been pretty fortunate that that has not occurred very often. We've been very lucky to find placements. But, for example, like with grizzly bears, it gets harder and harder to find those placement in zoos because, you know, for the last several years, the big focus has been on polar bears, for example. So we take them in. We hope we can find a placement. And a lot of times we will do research beforehand. We have, like, a list of places that are maybe looking for a particular species and we'll contact them first. But we have to be really careful of where we place them because we technically, we are responsible for the animal for the rest of its life. So we, it's like a loan to a zoo, but they are technically under our name. So if that zoo was to go under for whatever reason, we would be getting the call to come get that animal. So we always want to make sure that wherever it's going, not only does it have good care, and it's got good containment and good habitat, but also that um, we can count on that, you know, that facility being financially solvent for many years to come. 
we don't want to be in the business of getting grizzly bears back when they're like eight years old because we just can't obviously house them here. So one of the things that Lori was talking about was education animals because they have an education program with raptors. Uh, obviously, being our education manager here at the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, this is part of your responsibility. Talk to us about what an education animal is. Yeah, so an education animal, sometimes you hear them called ambassador animals, um, and they're really sort of the animal that represents their, their species or our mission, what we're trying to do. And so as wild animals, you know, these aren't animals that were bred in captivity typically. So there's, there's a lot of work we have to put in to, to make sure that these animals have the disposition where they don't get stressed out by being handled or around a lot of people. There's a lot of uh, focus that goes into identifying an animal that's appropriate. So Rocky the porcupine, he's one of our education animals, and he almost seems to enjoy getting out of his enclosure and and doing a program for a group of scouts or a a family group that's coming through and wants a little bit of something extra, a 15-minute extra program where they learn more and get a little closer encounter. Um, he, he is unquestionably a social animal. <laughs> He's very social, <laughs> yes. Uh, so um, with some of our new animals that we've gotten in, you know, it's just kind of creating that bond. So we spend a lot of time being around them and, and developing a bond, um, getting those animals used to just being close to people and um, being nearby people. And then eventually through training, we'll, we'll slowly work towards less stressful ways for us to interact with those animals. So how do we um, get our screech owl to come voluntarily onto our gloves so we don't have to try to capture an animal every time. They will voluntarily um, go into a new cage or onto a glove so that it's less stress for them. That's been a, a big move from the hard training that's been a classic clear back to ancient Egypt for the, the falconers to the, the softer training that says, I'm, I'm not going to grab the bird and stuff him on my glove. I'm yeah. going to give him a reason to want to be on my glove. Exactly. Yeah. And if we find, you know, if we're supposed to do a program and it's just not a good day for that animal, then we're going to put that animal's needs first. And we're going to say, you know, we promised you that you would get to see all of the fox squirrel but she's not in a good mood today because you know fox squirrels has mood they have moods just like we do so we'll we'll always put the animals needs first and in any of those programs i found when i was going through some training on working with ambassador animals and education animals what species are good candidates is really counterintuitive (laughs) Um, i was really surprised to see that most places would have an animal handler, uh, an education person, in a matter of a couple of months out handling a four-foot alligator, but they want quite a bit of time on the job and quite a bit of one-on-one time before they let them handle a raccoon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Raccoons, they're so tricky. I mean, if you spent any time around a toddler, it's kind of like being around a raccoon. You never know (laughs) what the next move is going to (laughs) be. They're always a surprise. If that toddler had really sharp teeth. Yeah. So a lot of work goes into preparing an animal to be an ambassador. Or Absolutely, an yeah. A lot, of, a lot of hours going into uh, working with them and, and training them, um, positive reinforcement, and making sure that that animal is comfortable um, and will be comfortable in any sort of educational program. 
What we offer at the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary and at all of the other sanctuaries I've dealt with is more than just a place where an animal can get thrown in a cage for the rest of its life. Being able to provide sanctuary these days in a way that's compliant with the Animal Welfare Act and that's really in the best interests of the animal is a lot more complicated than that. Up until the 1950s, it was pretty well considered as long as the habitat is big enough, it's appropriate enough. And I don't care if you have 100 acres, if you throw spider monkeys in there without something to climb, it's not appropriate. So we have to have an appropriate habitat, not just a, a big enough habitat. Sometimes it's more than just whether there's a tree to climb. What are some of the factors? I see you out there all the time with our animal care staff changing things around in the animal habitats and, and moving things and adding things. What's, what's this all about? Well, if you think about if that animal is in the wild, um, it has a, a much larger range than it's going to here at the sanctuary. And so in the wild, an animal can go through any variety of choices. You know, do I smell something on the wind coming from the north? I'm going to follow that for three miles and see see where that smell is coming from. Um, so there's all these different choices that they make every day. And so when you have an animal in an enclosure, you've dramatically reduced those number of choices. So enrichment is sort of a way that um, we can give animals uh different choices, you know, different smells, different sights and sounds. And so we're really trying to um, aid their their mental welfare as well as their physical well-being. And so, you know, things that they can climb or crawl through or play with or chew on, all of these things are, are going to be beneficial and making sure that they're changed out you know, either daily or weekly, and so that there's always something new, something different for these animals to to look at and to explore. And it's not just the food-based and activity-based enrichment that was popular decades ago. Right. <laughs> uh, you were just talking about scent, and yeah, I know I've had to write the checks on some of the scents yeah. that, <laughs> that you and yeah. Anna have been buying to use yeah. with the animals. Um, it's about sounds. Uh, it's exactly. about uh, tactile enrichment and feeling and touching new things. Yeah, and in, it can even be a little bit of something. So if you put a predator smell in a prey enclosure, you know that's something that is um, a little scary for that animal, and it's not meant to um, terrify that animal or you know make it submissive it's just it's a natural thing that would be in the wild you know they might come upon a predator smell and so how are they going to respond to that what are they going to need to do and so it brings out some of those more natural behaviors too which are really healthy for the animals in captivity and some of what you're talking about here with enrichment kind of crosses over to something that's been a really dirty word in in the animal world for 50 years and that's training but training isn't about making the animals do tricks, is it? No, training, in, especially here at our sanctuary, we have animals that, you know, they may have lived in the wild for several years before they came here. So they want nothing to do with people. Well, how do we have uh, checkups on those animals if they want to just kind of keep to themselves? So training can be a way for us to learn more about those animals you know if so with 
uh, our mountain lion, Sack, if she can, if we can train her to put her paws up high and stand on her two hind legs, then our vets can look at her, her underbelly and take a look at her without actually having to sedate her to, to look at her. So it's sort of a way for us to um, bond with the animals too, one way for us to spend time with them and, and for them to kind of gain some trust. But it's also a way for us to have these checkups on their animals and reduce the amount of stress that's going to be on them in the long term. A classic is having them come up and lean on the fence on command so that you can give them a shot. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and all of this gets really expensive uh, for the 40-ish animals that we have here at the moment. Um, our annual budget is about $365,000. So uh, a lot of We could of always spend more. <laughs> oh, always, always spend more. So getting back to our guest, Lori Wolf from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Lori, what advice would you give somebody who finds an injured or apparently orphaned animal in the wild? So I would say, first of all, be very careful approaching that animal. And, and if, if possible, call Fish, Wildlife, and Parks if you feel that that animal is injured or orphaned. But also give it time so we like i said what we think may be an orphaned animal may not be an orphaned animal and the worst thing that we can do is take it from that area where its mother may be nearby and now returning that animal later we realize it wasn't orphaned and it makes it more difficult for that mother one to find the animal but also to accept that animal back so leaving it there is the best scenario and then after and watching it over a period of time and watching it over a period of time is not 10 15 minutes watching it over a period of time is like 24 hours 48 hours just so you can get a really good sense because deer for example will leave their phones alone for up to 12 hours or more a day and then if it's an injured animal be very careful approaching that animal um many many wildlife have what i call weapons <laughs> so if you're not if you're not um <laughs> If you're not trained in how to handle wildlife and you don't have the proper equipment, you can um, end up getting severely injured, um, you know, especially like with raptors and their talons. I mean, they can go right through the skin all the way to the bone. And so we really encourage people to call their local fish, wildlife, and parks office and, and seek help in that, in that circumstance. Um, you know, one of the things I think we, we love about our work here that we do at the Rehabilitation Center is we get to see on a daily basis how much – Montanans care about wildlife. They're passionate about it. And we have everything from the logger who is out doing his work in the field who discovers a tree has been fallen with a family of kestrels coming in, driving four or five hours to bring them here, to the hunter that is out in the backcountry on a four-day hunt, finds an injured great horned owl and decides forget the hunt and bring it all the way to the center. So we get to see that on a regular basis. Um, and while we acknowledge that, you know, people have this relation, these relationships with animals on the individual level, and, and that makes us a special place here in Montana, but also at Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, we're responsible for managing wildlife at the population level. That's where our majority of our focus is at. And so what we ask for people is, Yes, think about what to do if you come across an orphaned or injured animal. But many cases, those orphaned and injured animals are orphaned or injured because of some sort of human-wildlife conflict. 
They've either been hit by a car, they've either ran into a fence, they've come across lead, and now they have lead poisoning, um, or they have people who have stopped alongside the road to take pictures, and now the, the mother has abandoned the young, is to really think about what they can do at the level of conservation in, I guess what I would like to say is, preventing it in the first place. So there's a lot of things that we can do as human beings to help animals, and whether it is, you know, getting the lead out of our ammunition, whether it is taking the time when they, when you, there's a speed limit within a national park that says 25 miles an hour or less, observing that so animals don't get hit. There's lots of things that we can do that would affect animals more at the population level than just at the individual level. I mean, we see it all the time where someone brings in, you know, a raptor or a bird that has been attacked by their cat. And what we ask is, can you keep your cat indoors for a little while, or at least the spring is over, or your dog? And sometimes we get resistance on that. And that's how we really help these animals, is preventing it in the first place, if that makes sense. I remember as a child finding a baby bird that had fallen out of the nest and my mother telling me, oh, do not pick that baby bird up and put it back in the nest. If it smells like a human, the mother will reject it. That's not actually true, is it? No, there's a lot of myths. There's still hangovers. I don't know if you remember. This doesn't have to do with rehabilitation, but maybe you remember. We, I was taught that if you ever have a bear encounter, the best thing you can do is run downhill to get away from it. And <laughs> that's not true either. It's really poor advice when I think about it. So, though, that is not true. And, in fact... They don't distinguish human scent. They're not going to abandon their young, um, and that's pretty true for wildlife in general. So the best thing is just to put it back where you found it and let, let mom take care of the animal. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate having you on. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Coming up in our next episode, Migration and Wildlife Corridors. We'll be talking about how far-flung ecosystems can affect the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, how migration paths have altered as land has been developed, how migration routes are passed down through generations, the Wyoming Migration Initiative, and wildlife navigation methods. Do you have comments about this episode or questions for our migration episode? Email podcast at yellowstonewildlife.org or leave us a text or voicemail at 406-426-1210. Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is a production of the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana. Our theme music, Evening at the Sanctuary, was written and performed by Justin Satterfield and recorded by Sean Keeney. For show notes and links, please visit yellowstoneecosystem.com. We are your hosts, Gary Robson and Courtney Long, and we hope you'll join us next week for another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem.